The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. What a great book by Chris Ullman, where he discusses all his experiences being the right-hand man to several billionaires and other powerful figures and all the lessons he's learned from them. Incredible stories, incredible lessons. Definitely, I can't highly recommend it enough. Pre-order this book on Amazon, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. The book's about to come out. And by the way, Chris is also the former world whistling champion, and he whistles at the end of this episode. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. You know, you've worked with so many successful, interesting people. And I like how it's not just billionaires that you talk about in the book. So now we're talking about four billionaires and a parking attendant, like John Kasich, who was governor of Ohio and he was in Congress and so on. And he ran for president. And, you know, obviously David Rubenstein, who I met you through David Rubenstein. David Rubenstein's been on the podcast three or four times. Thanks to you. You always um, helped me set those up. And, you know, you've worked for many, with many other people and, you know, I, we'll talk about David Rubenstein. He's the one I know best on your your list and, and subject. But I was fascinated by John Kasich because politics is an interesting skill. You have to be very, very charismatic and likable. And people are going to snicker at this, but you have to have ideas and and convince people that your ideas are worthwhile. And I see this in your book when you describe your interaction with John Kasich. What what skills do you think? John Kasich brought to the table that made him a successful politician. And of course, you could say he lost running for president, but everybody except, you know, 46 people have lost running for president. So well, Kasich is is a really amazing person. And he's a, a big, bold, brash leader. Uh, when he was in Congress, you know, he did things differently, which is really key, I think, to getting things done if you're able to get people to follow you and believe in what you're saying. So Kasich did two things, and I reference these in the book. One is about building bridges. Now, Kasich would work with the Democrats. Like there was a guy named Ron Dellums, who was a very liberal African-American congressman from California. 
and you know, very different from Kasich. But they teamed up to fight wasteful uh, Defense Department spending, and they succeeded. And they became friends, and they went to each other's weddings. And you don't see that anymore, and that's terrible. Uh, you know, Kasich worked with the, the so-called Blue Dog Democrats, and they actually got things done, which which is really not happening right now. And so that spirit of reaching across the aisle to work with someone is central to getting things done. We're in a culture now where it's, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. Now, I don't know where this planet is where I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong um, because that's not how you get things done. So that is a, to the extent that your listeners are wondering, like, what is the problem with Washington? You know, that's it, is this I'm right, you're wrong mentality. And Kasich was not like that. And it paid off because from 1998, uh, for four years, they balanced the federal budget. It has not been balanced since 2001. So think about that. For a generation, the budget has not been balanced. In fact, this next budget is going to be $2 trillion in deficit. That is an astounding amount of money. You mentioned in the book you've, you've worked with the IRS. So I'm asking you this question because I'm, I'm assuming, I am I, guessing you might know the answer. How much does the U.S. government make in revenues when you say there's a $2 trillion deficit, just roughly, how much does it spend and how much does it make? Yeah, so the federal budget is around $6.5 trillion, but they're only collecting $4.5 trillion in taxes. So then you have, a, you have a gap, and that gap is called the deficit. And then when you accumulate those, they turn into the debt. So the debt is this big pot that gets added to every year in the form of an annual deficit. And so it's a gigantic amount of money and it's unsustainable, but people don't, you know, they're more worried about, you know, trivial things than they are about these deep substantive things. I mean, right now we are paying almost as much in interest on the debt as we are to, for the defense department every year. And that's, that's just interest. It just goes to China and South Korea and Germany and all these people who've in countries that have lent us money. So it's terrible. So Kasich was brilliant at reaching across the aisle to get things done. And the other thing that he, he did that was really amazing, and this is a very powerful lesson, it's what I call act like you're relevant even when you're not. And the way things work on Capitol Hill is that when you're in the minority, meaning you're the minority party, as the Republicans were for literally for 40 years, you don't have any power in the House of Representatives, at least. And your, your sole job is to beat up on the majority. So that's what they did for years and years. So when Kasich became the, the top Republican on the budget committee, he just said, I don't want to do that. I actually want to produce my own budget. And people said, you're nuts because you're putting a target right on your forehead. And he said, I don't care. I believe in something. So he produced a budget and it didn't go anywhere because they were in the minority. But two years later, they won for the first time in 40 years and Republicans took control of the House of Representatives. Kasich goes over to the shelf because he's now the chairman, pulls off the budget, slaps it on the table and says, that's what we believe in. I have a staff that knows how to produce a budget. I know how to talk about a budget. The media respect me for it. My constituents love me. And so he acted like he was relevant even when he wasn't. 
And you know, if you're listeners who are, yeah, yeah, when you, you know, especially if you're kind of earlier in your career, you know, it's easy to sit back and wait to be told what to do. But if you throw yourself into the ring, act like you're relevant, even when you're not. And when the boss says, I need a memo or a press release or talking points or a speech, you just raise your hand. Even if you're the junior person, you act relevant. Now it's scary and you now have to deliver and there's pressure, but you now have power. So it's a mindset. And Kasich had that mindset. He wanted to be a player and he was not just going to sit there and throw darts at someone else's plan. He was going to say, this is what I stand for and what our party stands for. And that is a gigantically huge lesson. Um, and it, it, it's, all the lessons in this book have affected me personally, uh, immensely so. So first off, just to add to one thing you said, in order for Kasich to be relevant in that way, he had to do also do a lot of work. He had to know what the what is a budget, what is the budget of the United States, and how, as opposed to just arguing yeah. about someone else's budget and picking points to argue, which is a lot easier, he had to make a complete U.S. budget. So he had to know all the components. He had to know how to do That's this right. and had to know which issues were important. He also had to know then what's the philosophy of his party so that he can make a budget that fits in with the party and also not just like an angry budget that's the op. Like I see sometimes that the party that's not in power makes a statement like, let's eliminate the IRS. And they can say that because they know it's meaningless because they're not in power. So it's just to you know get favor from the people like, oh, that's great. Get rid of the IRS. But he had to make a relevant like you say, he had to be relevant. He had to make a relevant budget or a realistic one, not a science fiction one. So that's all these things exactly. take a lot of work and it's very hard. So what's an instance when you maybe were relevant and everyone's like, what's, you know, what's Chris doing? Why is he doing this? He doesn't need to do this. So here I am, an older, well-to-do Wall Street white guy. I don't see color. I didn't notice that. Uh, uh, no, okay. Well, then you're, then you're rare. Um, and who is sad and like crushed by police shootings of unarmed black people. And, you know, they're all complex and some of them may be justified, but nonetheless, it is very, it's heartbreaking when, you know, a Tamir Rice, a 14 year old is shot dead in a park. And I say, all right, what can this white guy do? And I say, well, I'm irrelevant. Like who cares what I have to say? And I, and I say, no, I don't want to be irrelevant. So I actually went to the TEDx Mid-Atlantic people, and it's a pretty prominent organizer of TED Talks in Washington. And I pitched him, and I said, listen, I have a great story about how to bridge the gap between whites and blacks in America. And they looked at me, and they're like, You're, you've got a lot of check marks that are going in the wrong direction here, buddy. And I said, listen, hear me out. And they heard me out, and I said, we love your story. We want you to do this talk, and it's on YouTube. It's a, it's a very powerful, so I, I wanted to be relevant and I was sick and tired of just saying, you know, you read the, the latest story about a shooting you say, well, what can I do about it? I can sit there and I can pray or I can feel sad or I can complain to whoever will listen to me, but I wanted to be relevant and productive and actually, and constructive in particular. And, you know, I got, I did that talk and thousands of people listened to it and I got great feedback from white and black people. And you know, it's it's all about um, loving your neighbor, and 
um, de-escalating and then finding common ground with people. And, um, you know, it's, if I may, I'll tell you this quick anecdote where I was, sure. and it's what the TED talk is based on is I'm in a, um, I'm in a McDonald's in, uh, Anacostia, which is kind of the tough part of town here in DC. And I was mentoring this young black boy. He's around 10 years old. I'm, you know, 40 years old and where it's 9 PM on a Tuesday night and this black woman just comes up and hovers over me and says, what's up with you and the black, what's up with you and the little boy? as if I'm a pervert or a kidnapper or something. And, you know, I felt like saying, take a hike, lady, you got a problem because I'm white. And instead, I just stood up, extended my hand, and I said, I am Chris Ullman, this is Monte. Uh, we're in this uh, Christian uh, mentoring program, and we're just uh, just finished our session, and now we're just getting some food. And I'll tell you, like, the scales fall from her eyes. She says, this is shocking. She says, we need more people like you. So she went from thinking I was a pervert to actually needing, wanting more people who look, who are doing what I'm doing. And, and it's because I treated her with respect. I didn't assume she's a racist and, and I could understand that it was a little unusual to see this older white guy with this younger black kid. So that anecdote served as the basis for this TEDx talk. And, you know, it's a very powerful story because too often people just, they revert to the mean. They they go to their their respective corners and just say, "You're bad and I'm good," and they say the opposite. You know, so Kasich's lesson like really impacted me. Like, get off the bench, get in there, be relevant, even if you think you can't be. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that 
It's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The other skill set, it seems, among really good politicians is kind of this X factor on charisma. And I feel charisma is a learned skill. It, you know, people could not have it and then early in life, and then later on they learn to have it and vice versa. What would you say Kasich's kind of charisma derived from? And again, I don't know if he's, I've never met him. I don't know if he's charismatic or not, but from the way you describe him, it sounds he's very charismatic. He is. I have and always will these memories of hearing him on the House floor. And there I am, a, you know, a staffer listening to him talk about a budget, which is usually a geeky thing, but in these very human terms. I mean, there's no doubt he, he's a politician. He's got a big ego, but he was able to harness it for the public good. And, you know, where does that come from? You know, I think a lot of it is just genetic and how someone grew up and, uh, you know, his parents were like, tragically killed in a car accident. And um, I'm sure that affected him and probably spurred him on to want to do good in the world and not wallow in his own grief. So, you know, everyone's complex, but it, so he had a lot of charisma, but then like you look at David Rubenstein, no one's going to say David is charismatic or Arthur Levitt. No one says like Arthur's actually kind of boring the way he speaks, but David and Arthur, who are both featured in the book, are amazing at getting stuff done because people look at their brains and say, these people are smart, they are focused, they are reasonable. Uh, there's this great anecdote in there about, uh, again, building bridges where Arthur Levitt, who's a Democrat, had to work with Phil Graham, who is this you know, good old boy Texan right. Republican, and Arthur's first time meeting him realized that Phil Graham loved Labrador Retrievers and saw a picture on his desk. And he said, hey, is that your dog? And he said, yeah, it's my dog. And he said, I have labs too. And they bonded over their dogs. So it's like, you have a dog, I have a dog. Hey, let's be friends. So that, that capacity to find common ground and then figure out where can you get 80% of you want of what you want, and I can get 80% of what I want. And let's do it. Let's do the deal. So Rubenstein's like that. Arthur was like that. Kasich was like that. So that capacity to get most of what you want 
is important and it's greatly lacking today. And, you know, it's a zero-sum game for a lot of politicians. Yeah, like you feel that a lot of it is transactional. Like they say something because they're getting something out of it or they're doing something because they're getting something directly out of it as opposed to just being a good, at least appearing like just being a good person. Yes. You know, when, you know, I remember um, when I worked on Capitol Hill, you know, some politicians routinely spent time with members of the other party. And that hardly happens anymore. Because when you spent, break bread with someone who you don't necessarily agree with, you will, you will come to see them as a human and not just as this, the face of the opposition. And that's, that's what we need, is to get back towards that. I mean, has AOC ever hung out socially with a Republican? I don't know. And you know, it would be great if they did. They should go on a bike ride. Yeah. They should go and yeah. have scones at a, you know, a patisserie someday, you know, and just <laughs> go, go hang out. I, I want to ask you about David. Like, so you've, you've been working with David since about 2000 or 2001. Uh, like 2001. You, yeah. And one thing, one story you talk, tell about David is that is very interesting is he's very good at taking constructive criticism, which I think is an important skill. Like, you you spoke about a, a talk he gave and he asked you, and he said to you afterwards, he didn't ask you, he said to you afterwards, well, that went well. And you said, that was horrible. <laughs> Which, A, I admire your guts to say exactly that. I'm assuming those were your words or that was awful, something like that. Yeah. And um, and then he asked why. He he and, and listened. And then over the years, he improved using the suggestions you gave him that one evening. And... It seems like that's yeah. a very important ability among these. So in David's a, a billionaire. You say in the book he's worth $3.3 billion. He runs the Carlisle Group. He's been on this podcast several times. Carlisle Group is probably the most powerful investment group on the planet. And he's got a fascinating story. Like, and, and you have many experiences with him. When you first met him, what was the story? So you know, he, he's very even-keeled. He's, he's not high. He's not low. He's like almost flat very straightforward and he's witty he's very funny and he is like very transactional which i like get to the point let's not get bogged down with silly emotion not that it's never there but the ratio is right 80 20 logic emotion i think and so here i am you know I didn't know him that long. And we're at this event. He gives this talk that I think is terrible. And what I concluded, and this is how I couched it in the book, is that it's the courage to give and get constructive criticism. Because some people have no interest in receiving it because their poopy don't stink. And then some people are scared to give it because they're worried about their career. And they think that if they're too honest with the boss they will be marginalized. And my view is you, you as the principal need to be open to growth. So you should actively solicit input from your subordinates. And then if you're, on the, if you're the subordinate, you have to step up and don't be a message taker, but be an advisor. Because if David said, as he did, well, that was good. What did you think? If I had just said, oh, David, you're great. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. You know, just pat him on the back. 
what good, what I was a message taker. I, I served no purpose whatsoever other than helping, you know, assuage his ego. But instead I said, no, that was, that was terrible presentation for these five reasons. And he didn't fire me. And the next year he did the same exact event, 2,500 people, Radio City Music Hall in New York, and he knocked the cover off the ball. Now, is it because of me? No, he, he had given 100 speeches between in that, that, that intervening year, but he took to heart. And this is what makes him a, a special leader is that he listens. He's not the kind to say, oh my, Chris, that was a great point. He will listen and he will absorb and he will act on some of it. He'll reject some of it. But that, he's, he has the courage to receive it. And thankfully, I had the courage to give it. And then that empowered me. I mean, I talked to him two days ago and I said, you know, I think here are some things for you to think about. He didn't ask me my opinion. I just told him my opinion. You know, at this point, I, I like to think he keeps me around because I'm one of the few people who tells him exactly what I think and what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear. And I would encourage your listeners, like those are the kind of bosses you should seek out. The ones who are secure enough to want to grow and, and give you the opportunity to help them along the way. And, you know, I think very important in that in your giving of constructive con- criticism is the word constructive. Like you have to actually give well thought out and easy to follow suggestions to improve. If you're going to say something's awful, you better have a reason why and a, uh, and a solution to improving it. I think that's very important as, as you did. Yeah, exactly. There's another lesson in there uh, regarding helping Arthur Levitt be his best. Because he would come to the office every day with like five new ideas. And the staff are there to say, oh, that's crazy. Don't do that. This one is, has hope. Let's put that on the back burner. And this other one here, this is really good. This is actionable. Let's get going. And so it, it requires you. Again, this is, this is the difference between a message taker and an advisor. I actually came up with a construct, like this five-step way of how do you critique someone's ideas? Are are they actionable? Are are they principled? Are they legal? How expensive are they? You know, so if you actually come up with criteria, then it helps you be a better advisor. Again, I I think, James, what you just said is so important that if someone says, hey, uh, what did you think? And you either are too scared to say anything, or if you do, you can't back it up. Well, then that person is not benefiting. And you, the whole goal is to help the principal, you know, the boss, grow and be their, their most effective. Yeah, so, so I, and I, I actually, I bookmarked uh, the Arthur Levitt criteria like strategy does it further a strategic goal? Creativity is it fresh and interesting, and 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 so on. What do you mean by principled? Well, <laughs> these days, um, people do and say things that I think are unmoored from actually having a either a management philosophy or principles, or or, or even ethically so or morally so. Um, you, know, you always. Maybe I'm just old school, but I think uh, as leaders, whether you're in the government world or the corporate world, um, you what you are saying and espousing should be principled, 
ethical. Uh, they should be balanced. You know, it gets back to that TED talk I did on race relations. I mean, if you start, if your operating premise is that I love other humans because they are other humans, now I'm going to act a certain way. And if you're a leader and you approach your decision making and uh, your agenda with an, an eye towards appropriateness and ethics and the like, you will then act a certain way. And you know, that's what as citizens or employees we should be driving towards in terms of you know, how, how we sanction or praise our leaders. And we've just gotten away from that. Like people lie all the time now as politicians and we're just kind of immune to it. And yeah, it's just crazy. And so with David, another story is basically you tell this interesting story where you're trying to raise money for a nonprofit organization and you describe your approach to David and he gives you criticism. He says, that's totally wrong. He says, wrong, wrong, wrong. And he gives you the exact opposite. And, and what we know about David and what you say about David is that he is phenomenal at raising money. I mean, Carlisle Group has half a trillion dollars, essentially, that he raised. <laughs> he's, he's maybe the best. He, maybe he's raised more money than anyone else on the planet in history. And so describe that. Like, how does he raise money? Because Okay, like I could just say when I was in the finances, it's very hard to raise money. It's very hard to hold out your hand and say, hey, can you give me some money for these reasons? David's effective at raising money. Uh, Well, I'll I'll rattle off what I think are the the key reasons. One is that he usually has a good cause. So Carlisle had good returns. So if you go to someone and say, we want you to commit to our newest fund and here are our returns, here's the team, here's the, the market conditions, and here's our approach, people are going to find that compelling. Uh, or if he's raising money for uh, you know, Lincoln Center or the Kennedy Center or you know, some, the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, he believes in it. So you really have to believe in the product or the organization or the cause or whatever it is. And, and, when he, and he doesn't, he's not a backslapper. When people see him on your show, they realize that fast. And when they see him on his Bloomberg shows and all that, you know, he's not this effervescent backslapping pole. You know, he is very, very measured. So David is like the facts. I'm going to tell you about the firm. I'm going to tell you about our returns. I'm going to tell you about this organization. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with your $10 million if you give it to us. So very factual, very balanced. And, you know, I, I've, I've long said that if you hired a a speech coach or a presentation trainer and said, I'm going to describe someone to you. And then you described David Rubenstein without telling them that it was David Rubenstein. The trainer would say, oh, that's totally wrong. That's not how you do it. And I'd say, well, it's David Rubenstein and he's one of the most sought after speakers and fundraisers in the world. And the reason is, is because he is authentic and he breaks the mold. He's very fact-based. And he's incredibly articulate and knowledgeable. You know, if he goes to a sovereign wealth fund in Abu Dhabi to go raise money, if the first half hour is spent talking about the global economic and political situation, and because they want to pick his brain, because they know he interviewed Jay Powell of the Fed last week, he just talked with President Biden, 
He just met with Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan. So he is totally in the mix and he has this knowledge that's super current. So that half hour spent is demonstrating that A, he's connected and B, that he is very knowledgeable. And then when he then pitches the latest Carlisle Fund, they're going to take it more seriously. So it's, it's a very human nature type of thing. It, there's a little, foreplay is always a good thing before you go in for the kill. And he understands that. What, what about when he was first starting and he didn't necessarily have the brand and the, he didn't necessarily have the president returning his phone calls? Like, so 1987, he's managing $5 million. How does he get beyond that? That is a whole nother part of his personality, which was he's indefatigable. If someone said, you need to go, we'll use Abu Dhabi again. You need to go to Abu Dhabi five times in the next three months to get a $5 million commitment. He would do it. He will fly around the world on, and then he was flying commercial, not private. And he would do it five times to demonstrate his commitment and to make people feel comfortable. So, and he will do that today. I mean, he will fly anywhere to go seal the deal. You know, now that Carlisle has new leadership, I mean, they are putting David to work. They're sending him everywhere because he's, you know, one of the most notable financiers in the world. And when he shows up at that, for that family office in, you know, in Taiwan or the, uh, the sovereign wealth farm in Abu Dhabi, like they take him seriously, but he has to, he, he's willing to put the work in, which gets back to that advice that he gave me for how to raise money. So he, he told me my approach was totally wrong because my approach was you ask once and the people either give or they don't give. And he's like, wrong, 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 just as you said. And he said, the way you do it is you ask again and again and again and again until they give. That's how you do it. And I said, well, don't you get annoying? And he said, well, it's not like you're getting the money. A good cause is getting the money. So don't worry about that. And so I, that's what I did. I was as annoying as could be in terms of being persistent. And I think I tripled the amount of money I raised. So it's that indefatigable nature and the persistence. Like David is, he either goes under, over, around, or through the obstacle. So that, that level of intensity and purpose animates everything he does. And I think just knowing him just from these podcasts, I think it's the fact that he is so even keeled and flat and so knowledgeable and a believer in whatever it is he's raising. Actually, the more people see him, the more they get that aspect of him. And so, you know, it makes it more likely that they're going to give money, whether it's for a charitable cause or to the Carlisle group or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's... <laughs> It's reminding me of something. So we, uh, we spent the past four years producing a new PBS series called Iconic America. And if you're, your listeners haven't checked it out, you should. It's on PBS. You can stream it for free. And so we're all used to David's style. You know, David's style, you know, again, he's, he's got this wry humor. It's kind of flat, a little monotone. So the Wall Street Journal writes a review. Their TV critic writes a review and says, wow, this series is great. I love the topic. Ooh, but that Dave Rubens died. He's kind of boring. <laughs> We're like, we all looked at that and said, hey, that's David. That's what makes him special. And we're just used to it. And so are his fans. So if, if, 
If you know, if you listen to him on Bloomberg or he's on Squawk Box all the time or PBS, you're used to that. And it actually redounds to his benefit because he's not a glad hander backslapper. You actually think he's serious and knows what he's talking about. But this Wall Street Journal TV critic was used to the the more effervescent personality. And so we didn't take offense at that. I was like, hey, that's David. That's what makes him special. You know, you've seen, you, you know, working with him for, for over 20 years and with many of these people, you've seen them not only get older and hopefully wiser, but also accumulate large amounts of money. Now, David Rubenstein, I'm sure, was very wealthy when you met him, but he's become a multi-billionaire since you've met him. And, you know, how how does that change one's life, do you think? Like, what, what, what have you seen change, both in terms of like, let's say, the physical manifestation of it, as well as just personality? Well, the three founders of Carlisle, uh, so there are three of the four billionaires, and there's another guy named Orlando Bravo, and he runs a private equity firm, and he's a client, and he's a billionaire, and you know, they all take this as a responsibility, that it's not just a license to go crazy and buy 300-foot yachts and things like that, which is one of the reasons why I like these people as humans and enjoy working with them because they view their circumstance as a blessing and that they must give back. So I think once you're, when they were on the Forbes 400, which is the list of 400 wealthiest people in the United States for the first time, I think it then like whacks them over the head and they say, wow, I actually am really rich. What am I going to do with this money? So there's duty. And I, I saw that emerge and evolve over time. For example, uh, Bill Conway, uh, who's one of the founders of Carlisle, you know, had a 20-year personal investment outside the firm, exited this. I estimate he made a couple of hundred million dollars on the deal. And I said, Bill, congratulations. And he said, thanks. Now I have to figure out how to give, get the money away. So you know, for a normal human, of normal meaning of a modest financial means, like this notion of being wealthy as a burden is incomprehensible. Like you don't understand it at all. Like how could that be a burden? And it actually is because once your basic needs are met, food, clothing, shelter, and all that kind of stuff, they have billions of dollars. And you have to figure out, what do I do with this money? Because I don't want to leave it to my kids and ruin their lives. And I don't want some foundation to give it away. And who knows if they'll represent my, uh, my objectives. So it took them a while to earn it. And then they have to be very thoughtful in how they give it away. So I've seen each of these billionaire people I know work very hard at giving it away in a thoughtful manner that will actually do good and not just writing a check so I can get the money you know, out of my account. So it's, it's been fascinating. And you know, it's just fascinating talking with people who have that much money. And you know, they're, they're really like everyone else. You know, the working title of this book for five years was Rich People Have Feelings Too, which everyone thinks is hilarious, but a bit divisive because most people don't care if rich people have feelings. Uh, but I, right. I use it, that as a working title because uh, my, having worked with super successful people for so long, I realized that they're really like everyone else. They just have a lot more money, meaning they have insecurities, they have fears, 
And uh, yeah, they don't worry about food, clothing, shelter, daycare, elder care, the way the rest of us do. But they still have, they're still human. And then they feel many of them burdened with this money, meaning that the duty of giving it away is overwhelming. I mean, if you had a billion dollars and you gave it away in $20 million chunks, that's 50 $20 million gifts. And I think that's 50. Yeah, my math is right. Yeah. And then they just, you can't just write a $20 million check to the local charity because they can't spend it well. So you have to do all this due diligence. You know, so like five organizations times 50 gifts, that's 250 organizations you would have to do diligence on to figure out who can you give the money to. It is a blessing and a curse at the same time. It's really fascinating. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, there's one common theme that runs through the various billionaires you discuss, and this almost sounds cliche, but they're extremely above and beyond action-oriented. So like we were talking about David Rubenstein before the podcast began, he's not just busy. It seems like he's doing so many things that you couldn't conceivably have enough time to do that and have time left over for family and fun and so on. You say something about Bill Conway where he basically says, don't do anything irrelevant. And I was curious about that phrase. Like what, how does he define irrelevance? Well, so Bill is the, or was from, 30 years, the chief investment officer at Carlisle. So the buck stopped with him. Do we invest this money in this company or not? So it's a gigantic burden you know, to write a multi-billion dollar check to buy the Acme company is just a huge responsibility. And you know, Carlisle founders were very good at dividing and conquering in terms of their duties. So Bill focused on the investment process and the team that did those, uh, the investing. Dan kind of ran the firm and David was the strategist fundraiser and face of the firm. So I, I actually, I, I recount in the book where um, since I was the PR guy, I would, you know, I would go to Bill occasionally and say, hey, Bill, do you want to talk to the New York Times about this? And he, he'd say, no, nah, I don't want to talk to them. I got it. It's like totally irrelevant to me. I need to go manage $300 billion. So sometimes he would see me coming down the hall and he would like change direction. <laughs> or he would avoid my office because if I saw him, I'd say, Bill, Bill, I need to talk to you. And, and then when I told him this, when I was writing the book, he's like, oh, did I really do that to you? And I said, oh, yes, you did. And you know you did. But I don't take it personally because your job 
was to focus on what's important, which is managing the money for our investors, not doing podcasts with James Altucher, who is a wonderful human being. But that's why David did it, because David's the face of the firm. So they were, I learned a lot from that about how to allocate time and you know, focus on what's important what is, versus what is irrelevant. Yeah. And, and again, even like with Arthur Levitt, very action-oriented. Like you t- described this one story, which actually made me wonder about his mental health, but he, you describe where he kind of gives you a list of things to do. And while he's still describing the list, he asks you, so how's it going so far? <laughs> like he expected you to already be working on the list. He did. And it was, it was this, like, I, there was this quizzical moment where he said, so how's it going? And I said, how's what going? And he said, well, the first item on the list. And I said, how can I be working on the list if I'm here talking to you? And he's like, you better get going. <laughs> you know, it's like, it is a mindset. Um, you know, it's because people have said to me, what are these kind of main attributes of these super successful people? And intensity is definitely one of them. Where, you know, Mitch Daniels, super intense, uh, Lou Gerstner uh, from IBM, uh, who saved IBM in the 90s, very intense. They are super focused. I mean, that doesn't mean they don't like to chit-chat once in a while, but when you are around them, you, you better be ready for the intensity, both to give it and to get it. And when they ask you a question, boom, you better have a good answer. And, and you know, one of the things I, I talk about, especially in the introduction to the book, is like, I, I went from this kind of middle-class um, minor league type of environment to the majors in Washington, where working with these senior government officials, all these billionaires, and and uh, I just really had to up my game. And so these, I just wanted to be the sponge, just learning and absorbing from these people. And I say, and that's why there are 15 people in there, because I sat down and I said, all right, I have worked with some immensely successful people. What have I learned from each of them? I literally went through all the people I've worked for that are these super big wigs. And that's how I came up with 50 lessons because they're, and they're not just work hard. Of course you should work hard. And there are a couple in there about like that, but most of them are these like super specific things like with Kasich, act like irrelevant, even when you're not. And there's this really great one from Bill Conway um, that's, that's called, it's not how much you pay it's if you do the deal. And I've yeah, had, I was ask about this oh my one too. gosh, I have had a bunch of people, and these are people in their 50s who are like on the tail end of their careers, say that lesson made more of an impact on me than any other lesson in the book. So this, this book is not just for 25-year-olds. You know, you're a 50-year-old. And so what that lesson means, it's not how much you pay, it's if you do the deal, is very much focused on how of focusing on the right priorities. And and again, it's not surprising that this is a Bill Conway lesson because too often people will say, all right, I'm only going to pay a billion dollars for that company because it's not worth a penny more than a billion dollars for it. And then someone comes in and bids um, $1.1 billion and say, I am not paying a penny over a billion and you don't get the deal. But then they knock the cover off the ball and you missed out. Why? Because you focus less on, do I really want to own that company and make a slightly smaller profit because I'm paying a little more? Or do I just fixate on the cost? And so I watch with my wife Shark Tank every night. 
And so someone comes in there and says, I'm going to sell you 10% of my company for $100,000. And then Mark Cuban says, hey, I like your company. I'll give you that $100,000, but I want 20% of your company. And they're like, not in a million years. No way. And I, say, and I yell at the TV and I say, listen, here is a billionaire who is immensely successful, who will radically change the trajectory of your firm and your life. And you're not going to give them 20% of the firm. Are you insane? Because they're fixated not on whether you do a deal with Mark Cuban. They're fixated on whether or not I give up 10% of equity or 20% of equity, which is the wrong thing to focus on. Like I had this young girl who I mentor who said to me, I have a job offer from Blackstone and they want to pay me $70,000. And I am not taking that job because I am worth $75,000. And I said, you are insane. It is the best investment firm on the planet. It will change the trajectory of your career and your life. You'll meet more amazing, interesting people than you could ever imagine. Who cares about the $5,000? She's like, wow, I never thought about it that way. I said, well, that's how you have to think about it. And she took the job. And that lesson is just immensely powerful. It is really powerful. You know, and there's, there's kind of a nuance to that, particularly with the Shark Tank example. If Mark Cuban owns 20% of your company, as opposed to, let's say, let's take an extreme, as opposed to 1% of your company, you actually got more value in that deal than you think, because now he's going to care more about your company. And Mark Cuban caring more is what's going to make you money as opposed to you owning 99% instead of 80%. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. But we focus on the wrong things. And like we used to know at Carlisle, like we'd have these new people join and they, they're going to run a, a new fund. And then they get all persnickety about their business card. And my team had been there for 20 years and we'd look at each other and say, they're not going to last long. Because they're focused on the wrong thing. Who cares about your business card? Are you out there kicking butt and investing or not? Anyway, so um, focus on the right things. And, and it becomes muscle memory over time. You will act, the more you do it and get used to focusing on the right things, you really get a good sense of what are the right things. And, and you know, it, it, it's interesting. You tell this one story in the book that... The story is not about what I'm about to say, but it was an interesting story. You personally were negotiating with David over your job at one point, and he was very, very direct. Like, it seems like with a lot of these guys, there's no fluff. Like, they're just, they cut out all the fat in a conversation or in a negotiation. They get right to the point. And, you know, essentially, you had a mild discussion with Goldman Sachs about going from Carlisle to be heading crisis communications at Goldman Sachs. And this was after the financial, it was in 2011. And of course, all these people talk, where it gets back to David Rubenstein. He calls you 8.45 a.m. the next day and says, I hear you're talking to Goldman Sachs. Well, we want you to stay. <laughs> what will it take? And and you're kind of like a little tongue-tied. So he says, well, it will take this, 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 and this. And you say, yeah, that would be about doing it. He says, okay, I'll call you back in 15 minutes. He calls you back and it's done. It, that was an amazing story. That one's called The Power of Transactional Thinking. And again, this is like, how do you focus on the right things? And a lot of people, 
would, in David's position, would have said, you betrayed me, can't trust you anymore. How could you do this to me after all I've done for you? Your future here is... So when I got that phone call... So, from, you, were, so you were nervous, you were scared. I was, of course you, nervous. You because, knew the phone call was coming. Yeah, I knew because my immediate boss heard first. He then right. told Rubenstein, Rubenstein... And then this is what's brilliant about David, is David says, uh, these are the five reasons you would talk to Goldman. So he's empathizing with me as a human that, oh, they're going to pay you more. It's a great name. You're going to learn a lot. It's an intense time and all this cool stuff. And I said, and I start to explain that I'm not looking for a job. He's like, just be quiet. He said, I don't want you to leave. This is what I'll do, just as you noted. Now, what's interesting about this, when I was writing the book, people would read these lessons and say, oh, this, this doesn't happen. This is just so obvious. Any leader would never do what you're concerned about. And I'd say, you don't know what you're talking about. Because there was another time at Carlisle where there was a very senior person who reacted very badly when another senior person left. And then, you know, in the back on the way out the door, which is stupid. You know, if someone's leaving, yeah. you think you've got to, that you need to de-emotionalize the situation. It's not about you. You know, like someone will say, why are you doing this to me? I'm like, I'm not doing anything to you. I have my family, I have my career to manage, and I'm managing it. And so I had seen, it's, it's actually, I'm, I'm going to give you another, this amazing contemporary example. So there was an article about David Solomon just the other day, who's the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Under attack, things are a little better right now, but under attack, and you know, a lot of people want him out. And in this article, it said that if a journalist has written an article about uh, D- David Solomon doesn't like the article, he won't talk to that reporter anymore. Yeah. Now, this guy's 50, 55 years old, acting like a 15-year-old because, and there's a lesson in the book, I should send this to Solomon. There's a lesson where Arthur Levitt, when he was SEC chairman, was under attack by some member of Congress for abusing his travel budget. And it was total BS. But Business Week writes an article about it. And we tried to make it a little better, but it was still a terrible article because it's questioning his ethics. And most people would have said, you're dead to me. I'm never talking to you again. And even my PR people won't talk to you. Arthur turned on the charm offensive. He took her to breakfast. He took her to lunch, gave her scoops. Four years later, Business Week does a cover story on Arthur. She is one of the authors, and it, it's this, it called him the investor's advocate with this Moses-like photo. I mean, it was amazing. Two years after that, he co-authors his memoir. Think about <laughs> that. So, oh, my gosh. If, if he took the Solomon approach, none of that would have happened, and he would have had an enemy. So, so much of the... Like someone might say to me, what's your state of mind to actually absorb these lessons? And I say, you know, you just got to be a little humble because if you see someone like Arthur Levitt think long-term and de-emotionalize, you know, maybe that would work for you too. Or if you see Rubenstein, you know, his ability to pivot from an unfavorable situation to a good situation, Maybe I should too. Or if, 
like Kasich reaching across the aisle. Like maybe I could benefit from that too. So I, I determined that if people just have a modicum of humility, then these lessons will like really take root in them, have a huge impact. Can you give us a story about David Rubenstein pivoting from an unfavorable situation to a favorable one? Because I think that's, that is a big skill. Yeah, so here's, this is a wild one. So David was shopping for a bar mitzvah gift for his son. So he's at a Jewish bookstore and the rabbi, who's a, who's a scribe, says, I have a Torah scroll that is of Holocaust provenance, meaning they actually discovered it in a concentration camp, but it needs repair. And David said, I will buy it and I will repair it. And so this guy then repairs it. David, in this very elaborate ceremony, gives it to Central Synagogue, which is a very prominent synagogue in New York City. You know, and then six months later, we find out it's a fraud. Just oh fake. Gosh. The guy faked it. So I remember telling David and going, you know, imagine delivering that after all we went through. A, and we had Holocaust survivors at the ceremony where we handed this over. I mean, it was, it was a beautiful situation that was then marred by this fraud. So David is basically for like 15 seconds says, holy crap, that's insane. Then in his swivel chair, turns around, calls the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, gets the director on the phone and says, I need the top scholar in the world on Torah Scrolls. Gets that guy on the phone and says, we got a problem. I need you to help me solve it. I need to get a replacement. And if it takes repair, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy it. I'm going to replace it. And Central Synagogue will have an authentic Holocaust era Torah scroll. And he did. Like, he didn't wring his hands for days and weeks and I'm a victim. It was, it was amazing. It was actually a stunning process to watch because people love to wring their hands. Victim, victim, victim. And David's not like that. David has got a lot of to-dos. He even calls it sprinting to the finish. He has so many things he's trying to jam in. A lot of things, limited time. Who has time for wringing your hands? Do you feel like all of these people you speak of, do you feel like their ambition never ends? Do you think they're driven right up until the last moment? Or do you think at some point they just say, enough's enough, I'm going to just take it easy? Never ends. I always wonder about this. Like, I want it to end sometime. I want to <laughs> hope that in the, I want to hope that in the future it ends. Not not life, but like you know the desire for for, and I don't mean the desire for more accumulation, but the desire for more. I don't know, career or ambition or whatever it is. Well, I think that's an excellent point. I think so much depends on what you're seeking. You know, if it's just more money, you know, what's the point? I mean, once you have three billion, why do you need five? You know, but if it's I agree if that. it's just accolades from strangers, I'm not sure what the point of that is either. If it's and again, this is all very highly judgmental, and it's it's also reflective of how I'm trying to live my life, is if the intensity can be directed towards putting my wisdom, resources, connections to use then why not? Like, 
like this notion of like David has been asked for years, what do you do to relax, have fun or go on vacation? And he used to say, I have no hobbies. <laughs> I would say, I, you even may have asked him that question years ago when we first met. And I said, David, stop saying you don't have any hobbies because you do have hobbies. Your hobbies are reading, traveling, and meeting people, uh, really need people all around the world. Like, what's wrong with that? Just because you don't play golf or you know, watch the latest Netflix series doesn't mean you don't have hobbies. So he kind of he, he embraced that. So I think the key, especially for your, your more seasoned or older listeners, viewers, is to say, how can I use all of this accumulated resources and wisdom to actually give back in a substantial way? And, you know, yeah, maybe I'll ratchet back on my actual job, but People like that need to be engaged because they have the money, they have the time, they have the connections, they have the wisdom. They have, I think their, their duty is to give back. And, you know, it, it's interesting because the book is titled Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. So, A, I mean, there is valuable lessons from the parking attendant. I, I, the chapter on happiness is very interesting where he seems like a very happy guy. And, and, and you contrast that with, something David Rubenstein said, how he doesn't really know a lot of happy billionaires. And is that true that he doesn't really know a lot of happy billionaires? And, you know, and of course, the parking attendant is a good example that, you know, happiness is really uncorrelated to, to money. There are a lot of studies on that. It's correlated, depending on which ones you read, but like up to like 70, 80, 90,000 or something like that. And this gentleman, the parking attendant, I assume is below that, but nonetheless was still happy. It would, what I find fascinating about David's claim is that he's consistent with saying it. You know, he knows a lot of billionaires, so I, I take him at face value. The four billionaires I know, you know seem reasonably happy, but you never know for sure. And I do... The reason I put Sala, and that's, that's the parking attendant's first name, you know, in the book is that I, I really love this juxtaposition between kind of someone's lot in life, you know, on the lower socioeconomic part of this spectrum, where you know, I drive my car and he parks it every day for four years, and, but big, bright smile, Ethiopian immigrant, uh, learning English, but happy. Literally every day, Mr. Chris, how are you? How's your family? How's your weekend? And you're not, and it's always cold in the, or hot and dark in the garage. And then there's this juxtaposition. You, you take the elevator up 40 feet and there's all these billionaires and all this money sloshing around. And Rubenstein said he doesn't know many happy billionaires. And they say, well, how the heck is that possible? So, so Sala just inspired me and is, is a powerful reminder to focus on things other than, you know, material possessions. Now, again, most people do worry about money because they do have to take care of their sure. daycare and their health care and their old parents. And so wealthy people don't have that, which is why this, there's this extra duty, I believe, to make, to do good with their resources because they are effectively absolved 
of most of the normal human stress that that people have. And Bitsala was a, a great reminder of, hey, focus on what's important. Is he had two children, his wife, his faith, and serving his parking clients well. And like that is an honorable life. And you know, it's very interesting because what I in part what I get out of that lesson and several of the other stories that you've that you've told today and that you've written about is that you are curious and listen to the parking attendant and the, of course the billionaires and uh, and the politicians and so on and on like you have achieved success this is the reason why David Rubenstein called you at 8:45 in the morning and says we have to keep you here is you're listening to these people and and treating them equally the parking attendant and the billionaires and a lot of people don't do that you know this is this has been your kind of trademark to success. David Rubenstein raises a lot of money. Bill Conway, you know, does the deal. You're listening and learning from all of these people around you. And it doesn't matter what their title is and, and who they are. If you feel there's a lesson there, you, you get it. Well, in the end, you know, my faith says, love God, love your neighbor. It's a, it's a simple message. It's difficult to do, but it is the mandate. And so I try to live it. I'm a sinner. I'm imperfect. But every day I try to say, love God, love my neighbor, just as a mantra. And as, as Rubenstein himself says, you can't take that wealth with you. The, the Egyptians tried it and it did not work. So, you know, I've got a fancy car and two houses and a nice 401k. And, you know, it, it's all ephemeral in the scheme of time. And from an eternity standpoint, it's as irrelevant as can be. So therefore, focusing on fellow creatures of God, we're all children of God, like that's where it's at. I mean, yeah. so that, that doesn't mean I live like a pauper, but we, my wife and I do give a lot of money away. And during COVID, we made a point of finding individual humans who are suffering and just writing pretty nice sized checks say, here you go. No strings attached. We're happy to help. That's, that's really, that's really great. And, you know, I guess a, a final question is, you know, you're, you've been the right hand person for so many of these larger than life characters, you know, whether it's John Kasich, Arthur Levitt, David Rubicine, Bill Conn, all, all the names you mentioned and, and many more. Uh, and there are all of these in, you know, we're primates. So we always have this status hierarchy from alpha down to omega. And they're like these super alphas, you know, running for president, head of the SEC, head of the largest private equity firm that ever existed. Do, do you ever, like, and you're next to them. Do you ever, do you ever feel the ambition to, Hey, I'm going to go and do this. And uh, did you ever feel that urge to, to be at the top of that hierarchy? Uh, I guess yes and no. Yes, in that I tried to figure out what am I really good at? You know, whistling. So I tried to be at the top of that hierarchy and succeeded for 10 years. You know, in PR world, whether it's working on Capitol Hill or White House or 
So I was definitely at the top of my profession from a PR standpoint. So very grateful to have had those opportunities. So that was, so I, yes, in that sense, but they were very fixated or focused on what am I actually good at? And I'm good at whistling and I'm good at PR. So might as well try to be my best in those two areas. Do I want to run for president? Not in a million years. Do I want to be SEC chairman? No. Do I want to do what it takes to be a billionaire like David? No. <laughs> because there are definitely trade-offs. I mean, he traveled all the time. Didn't see his family a lot when his kids were little. Actually, there was a moment when I was thinking about leaving the White House and I, I couldn't and go to Carlisle or stay in the White House. And then I talked to a, someone who had my job at one point and he said, listen, you should stay if you want to be the White House spokesman at some point, or at least position yourself for that job. And I said, I don't want that job. And he said, then you should leave because Carl will be a great job. And I stayed for 18 years. So, you know, I, because I do like to watch Homeland, <laughs> you know, on, on what I do too. Yeah. And no, I don't watch a lot of TV, but there are a couple of these you know, cool government intrigue types that I do watch. And David doesn't watch any of that stuff. And I do like to go ride my bicycle because it actually helps me write my books better. And I do love to spend time with my kids because they just delight me. And my wife and I love going on dates. So, you know, I try to, I've actually, I could argue I have like the perfect life. I mean, perfect in that I have these people I love around me. I have disposable income. I live in America. I live in Washington. Um, so I count my blessings every day. So now I know everybody probably asked you this, but, and I was debating whether they ask you this, but can I hear you whistle? <laughs> uh, I would be honored. Okay. So here's um, uh, Take the A Train, made famous by uh, Duke Ellington, but written by Billy Strayhorn. There you go. Hope wow. it was worth the wait. <laughs> that that was amazing. You really feel like the emotions of the song. Like it's beautiful. Well, that, that warms my heart because that's what it's about. You know, it's great writing and storytelling, and being a musician is really about telling a story and and notes. So uh, if it can move your heart, then that's that's what makes it special. That was great. That was beautiful. Thank you for doing that. I, I felt bad asking. Sometimes no. people don't like to oh, no. do their magic trick on, on the show. <laughs> in the, my first book on Find Your Whistle, there are these very funny stories of like being the, tr the pet monkey or the trained monkey where people snap their fingers yeah. and say, hey, come over here and whistle. Um, and are, I, I'm happy to do it. It is, uh, it is really a lot of fun. Well, Chris Ullman, author of Find Your Whistle and your new book, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, Success Strategies of the Wealthy, Powerful, and Just Plain Wise. 
great books. I really enjoy them. So much to learn from you and from the people you've learned from. And also, I appreciate all the help you've done. I mean, I've had such a, a great time interviewing David uh, that uh, it's, it's always a pleasure having him on the show as well. And I know you've been instrumental in, in organizing that as well. And I just really appreciate everything you do. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure and honor, James. Thank you for having me and uh, excited to hear uh, more of the interviews you do. You always have cool people on. Thank you. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.